This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Hello and welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum. My name is Tracy Walbrink, and I'm one of the pediatric intensivists at Boston Children's Hospital. We have with us today Dr. Pradeep Kamat. Dr. Kamat is Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine, and he's also the Director of the Children's Sedation Services at Eggleston Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, welcome, Dr. Kamat. We're excited because you've made uh, outpatient pediatric sedation really your academic focus, um, and it's an area that a lot of pediatric intensivists are participating in and directing around the world. And can you tell us a little bit about how is it that the pediatric intensivist is has gotten involved in outpatient pediatric sedation? Uh, first of all, thank you, uh, Tracy, for having me at the World Shared Forum. Um, I don't have any disclosures or conflicts of interest. Um, I think uh, to answer your question, uh, I think there's an increasing demand for uh, procedures to be done outside the operating room. Uh, and uh, there's a shortage of pediatric anesthesiologists. Uh, so the question becomes, what about other pediatric subspecialties uh, kind of filling that gap? And I think pediatric intensivists are the perfect uh, physicians to kind of play that role. Uh, we manage uh, airways and hemodynamics of very sick children in the PICU, and it is kind of very natural for us to kind of attend to patients outside the ICU who may need airway management while they're undergoing sedation. In a survey that we did, uh, we, uh, you know, we surveyed uh, all members of the pediatric research uh, consortium, which is the research arm of the Society for Pediatric Sedation, we found that 78% uh, of all sedations were done uh, by the pediatric intensivists. Uh, and, uh, you know, pediatric intensivists see very sick children. Uh, many times we see um, a lot of death and dying. And outpatient uh, procedural sedation for them is a good break from the high acuity and high complexity environment. Uh, so it's a good thing to go outside and, you know, talk to a normal patient, if I can say that, uh, who you are going to sedate in, and then wake up and send home. That is one. Uh, I think a lot of uh, uh, senior uh, ICU doctors who have done critical care for 25, 28 years, uh, who for whatever reason uh, want to not work in the ICU anymore, I think sedation is a perfect place uh, for them to transition uh, as uh, they're going towards retirement. Uh, and so they can work in sedation, which they can use the ICU skills, but they don't. it is not as uh, complex or high acuity. What is the difference between uh, 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 sedation we do in the PICU uh, versus the sedation in an outpatient setting? So I think in the PICU, uh, we know our team very well. We have the same uh, nurses, RTs on, an, on a daily basis. Uh, and so uh, there's a lot of support within the PICU. Um, the other thing that happens in the PICU is we take airway instrumentation for granted. I mean, we can intubate any patient anytime. Uh, there's ventilators uh, available. There's a lot of different sort of monitoring that's readily available. And more importantly, we have uh, easy access to our patients. Now, in the outpatient setting, uh, what happens is 
the, your airway rescue skills become more important because instrumentation of the airway is not your goal. Uh, and in fact, uh, that is that some may consider that as a failure if you try to intubate every kid in the outpatient arena while you're doing a sedated procedure. Um, the other limitation of outpatient sedation is you may not have a plethora of providers. Uh, you may have limited resources. And most of the time you have a nurse or a, or a tech who helps you with the procedure. Uh, there's also limited monitoring and the access to the patient because if the patient is you know, put in this MRI, in the MRI magnet area, you may have limited access to the patient. Um, so um, do, what's the data that is supporting what ICU how ICU doctors do outpatient sedation? Uh, so I published a paper in 2015 in a Pediatric Critical Care Medicine Journal where I looked at about 91,000 uh, sedation encounters. And uh, basically the primary outcome was to look at adverse events and uh, something called as serious adverse events, which I'll explain to you in a second, and overall procedures uh, success. Uh, our secondary outcome was to look at uh, you know, uh, adverse event by location of sedation and look at the risk factors for an adverse event. So what we uh, basically found out is that uh, most of the sedations that were done by the pediatric intensivists were done uh, for uh, radiology procedures, uh, basically radiology imaging. Uh, the second, uh, about 25% of what they did uh, in outpatient sedation area was for hematology oncology procedures, uh, which is basically uh, LPs and bone marrows. Uh, and uh, they sedated a variety of patients, but most of them uh, were uh, under ASA status uh, less than three. Uh, because I think most people would agree that as we go to an ASA status of four, that uh, goes into kind of a general anesthesia, anesthesiologist uh, area. Um, we, when we looked at uh, the overall adverse event rate, and when I say uh, overall adverse events, I'm looking at things like hypoxia, desaturation, uh, coughing, secretions, uh, was very low. For the 91,000 encounters, we had just about barely 5% of kids having adverse events. Uh, but I think most uh, uh, providers will be interested in what we call as serious adverse events. And uh, serious adverse events are basically events that can cause irreversible neurologic damage. And, and, and that includes, you know, cardiac arrest, uh, aspiration, uh, death, um, uh, you know, like a, a laryngospasm. Some people may even put airway obstruction in this camp because if you don't take care of airway obstruction early, you can go down the spiral of uh, cardiac arrest. And uh, the rate of serious adverse events was about 2.2% for this 91,000 encounters. The good news is uh, no kid, uh, no patient died, and only one kid had cardiac arrest, but was uh, you know discharged home neurologically intact. Mm -hmm. um, so, what are the risk factors for an adverse event? So, we did like a multivariate logistic regression and went back and looked at what what are the you know what puts a kid at risk for having higher complications. And from a location standpoint, we found out that kids who have uh, procedures done in a dental suite. Uh, kids who had procedures done in a cardiac cath lab uh, were at a higher odds to have complications, which makes sense because these kids going to the cath lab obviously have some 
a cardiac problem and you know so they are sick to begin with um, the dental sedates you know the uh, the the approach to the airway is difficult because you know they're working in the mouth uh, the other thing we found out is the more uh, drugs that are used, um, there was another um, uh, reason to have an adverse event. So uh, intensivists need to be careful. Uh, you know, the, the usual scenario is you uh, give uh, uh, midazolam, you give fentanyl, the kid doesn't get sedated, then someone else comes and uses some other drug. So the drugs keep on piling up and you have an additive effect. So the more drugs you use, the uh, you know, your adverse event rate goes up. Uh, we also found out that uh, painful procedures actually decreased uh, the odds of having an uh, adverse event. And that has been shown in the literature before that painful procedure, you know, can kind of uh, stimulate the patient to have, uh, like to breathe and so therefore have less complications. We'd like to take a moment now to involve our viewers in the discussion by asking a question. In your response, please state your city and country location. The question is this. Do you have an outpatient pediatric sedation program at your hospital? And if so, who is responsible for delivering the sedation? The question becomes, what are the procedures um, uh, intensivists can sedate for? And I like to tell, uh, you know, uh, providers that, you know, procedures can be diagnostic or therapeutic. Um, we uh, can then look at procedures as those that are non-painful, uh, which are, we consider as non-invasive. And usually these are radiology procedures. You know, they are a patient who's needing MRI or a CT scan or nuclear medic uh, medicine scan. Or they can be very painful procedures at the other extreme, which we call as invasive invasive procedures. And these are usually uh, oncology procedures for bone marrow or, or renal biopsies. Those can be uh, very painful. And in between, we have, uh, we have what, what we call as distressing procedures, which are minimally invasive procedures. They're not exactly painful, but they can you know, cause uh, the situation to be very distressful for the patient. And, and a good example of that is you know, placement of a Foley catheter for uh, the VCUG studies, or even an IV placement for kids can be very traumatic. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, the other uh, way, you know, the, uh, the, the learners ask me, what's the best way to you know, s uh, select what drugs we use for sedation? And I always uh, point them out to this uh, slide where on the y-axis I have the degree of pain and on the x-axis I have the level of immobility required. And I tell them you basically need to follow the boxes in, 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 this, uh, in, this, uh, in this graph. And if you go um, to the extreme right, you see that those procedures that need the highest level of immobility as well as the highest, uh, the degree of pain is very high. Um, that's a procedure that's going to need good pain control as well as the patient to be kind of uh, sleeping for that procedure. So a good example of that is a bone marrow biopsy. It's a very painful procedure and you do not want the patient to move as they're doing the bone marrow biopsy. So that's a patient who's gonna need analgesia as well as a good sedative uh, for the procedure to complete successfully. Um, the other thing I think ICU doctors need to be very careful about uh, is uh, sedation is a very slippery slope. Uh, you, there, there are different levels of sedation, and these levels are not defined by drugs, but they are really defined by the patient's response. Uh, so if, a pa if you give a drug to a patient, 
uh, but the patient can respond to verbal commands. We call that mild sedation. A, a classic example of it is a patient who got a little small dose of oral midazolam, and he may be a little groggy, but still is able to respond appropriately. Uh, on the other extent, we have general anesthesia where the patient is, cannot be aroused and many uh, very frequently you may need actually airway or even cardiac support for the patient in between those two extremes you have uh, moderate sedation which they previously used to call as conscious sedation which where the patient will respond to uh, a light tactile stimulation uh, and then you have deep sedation where the patient only responds to a painful stimulus uh, so a drug doesn't really define uh, what level you can remain at. Uh, it's basically the patient can slip from mild uh, sedation level to almost general anesthesia. So the point I'm trying to make here is A, monitoring is the key, and B, you need to be ready to kind of recognize and, res and rescue any airway complication that can take place. Uh, so uh, another uh, classification that is very frequently used in uh, the anesthesia world is actually the American Society of Anesthesiologists, what they call as ASA physical status classification. Uh, usually uh, uh, level one is a healthy patient. Uh, level two is a patient with some mild systemic disease. Uh, level three would be a patient with severe systemic disease. And level four would be a patient who uh, the disease is a constant threat to their life. And level five is a patient who's not expected to survive the next 24 hours with or without the surgery. So the first three levels, uh, especially the first two levels, the patient is not at the highest risk if he, in case he had to have anesthesia. So those are the two levels uh, and some uh, that are very uh, easily done uh, in an outpatient arena. Uh, intensivists are highly specialized, trained providers, and they can do even uh, level uh, three, uh, ASA le PS level three uh, sedation. So that was an excellent overview of outpatient pediatric sedation. I wonder if you could talk us through a little bit about how you got started um, to develop the outpatient pediatric sedation program at your hospital. Um, I think th that's a very good question because I think a lot of people have, uh, you know, like how to get started is their main, um, you know, is the biggest question. Everyone has good ideas, but how do we get started? You know, a lot of things are done by anesthesia and suddenly intensives want to jump and kind of do the same thing that uh, anesthesia does. So I think what happened was uh, prior to 2002, um, you know, uh, we didn't have a lot of newer drugs that could be used for sedation. Uh, we had drugs that were kind of uh, uh, drugs that uh, like pentobarbital or, or uh, chloral hydrate um, that were used for outpatient sedation. And uh, radiologists kind of, uh, kind of uh, led a lot of this sedation at that time. Uh, there were a lot of nurses who were either ex-cardiac um, ICU or PICU or ED nurses um, that kind of handled sedation at that point. Um, as uh, in 2001, uh, more studies started coming out uh, telling us about possibility of radiation risk with uh, CT scans. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of uh, referrals uh, started going away from the CT scans to uh, um, MRIs. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what happens is when we do MRIs, patients need uh, this, the procedures, the studies are longer, mm -hmm. and uh, patients usually need sedation. So there has to be some sort of an organized fashion in which the sedation is provided to these patients. Uh, so uh, the, I think the hospital initially uh, approached the anesthesiology uh, physicians, and I think they were not 
quite uh, able to meet the demands of outpatient procedural sedation. And then I think the next automatic uh, group that was kind of came on the uh, radar was a, a combination of ICU doctors and ED doctors, two pediatric subspecialties that are really skilled in managing airway and hemodynamics. And uh, I think we uh, uh, stepped up to the challenge mm -hmm. and we kind of provided outpatient sedation at our hospital. So I think what we did very good is we complemented what anesthesia did. Uh, we didn't compete with them. Uh, we um, uh, showed uh, a lot of success in our uh, in the procedures that we do, uh, and so uh, as we did very well in radiology, other services started seeing the benefit of outpatient procedural sedation, the ease of uh, you know uh, easy to schedule. Uh, you know, uh, patients and uh, parents' satisfaction. Uh, it's, uh, you know, they come in, they are discharged the same day. Uh, the other important things is uh, the, the, the operating rooms are freed uh, so that uh, the operating rooms can be used for more complex procedures. Uh, so other services, for example, the nephrology service wanted us to do their renal biopsies. Uh, so we started doing renal biopsies. Uh, the onc uh, hematology, oncology uh, uh, physicians wanted us to start doing LPs and bone marrows in the outpatient clinic. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of a win-win for everybody. And that is how we, uh, as ICU docs uh, and, uh, and, and the ED docs, started the service at our hospital. We now uh, have three full-time physicians who do sedation. Uh, we have uh, two ICU docs who do sedation and one ER doc who, uh, who does full-time sedation with us. We uh, have a staff of uh, other PRN docs whose uh, primary uh, job is either in the ER or the ICU. They also do sedation for us. And we have one anesthesiologist who also uh, picks up some shifts in our uh, sedation uh, service. Uh, we also have an excellent team of well-trained nurses and uh, as well as a lot of uh, tech uh, techs who work in uh, radiology or outside that are very skilled and exactly know what we do in outpatient sedation. Uh, the other uh, thing that we have implemented at Children's that has been very successful is uh, sedation at a freestanding imaging center. And I think uh, we were the first to report our success where this freestanding imaging centers are pretty far away from the main hospitals. Uh, they really don't have a code team, although they have well-trained nurses, uh, they have a court cart and the sedation doc uh, who is providing sedation there is, is a very um, competent. We do not send any physician there till they have a good three to six months of uh, training in the main hospitals. And what, when we looked at some data, we found out that uh, of the almost 700 uh, sedations that we did, uh, and mostly they are uh, ASA one or two kids, uh, we had 99% procedure success, no serious event, no cardiac arrest, no death. Uh, the selection criteria for this outpatient freestanding imaging centers is, is slightly different. We do not do as sick kids as we would have done at the main hospital. We do uh, kids who are mostly ASA one or two. We do not do cardiac, kids who have cardiac uh, uh, issues, uh, kids who are very premature, uh, and we usually try to do kids who are more than six months old. So what about, you know, uh, infants who are uh, very small, I mean, who are like less than six weeks of age? Uh, many times when they are referred to my sedation service, we will uh, talk to the referring doc if he's a pediatrician or even a pediatric neurologist and say, 
how urgent is the study? Can the kid, uh, wait, uh, can the child wait for another uh, couple months? Uh, can he grow a little older? Uh, and, and most of the times the pediatricians or the referring doc will work with us and say, this is not urgent. This is just a screening study. Just you can wait for another two, three months. Um, we, our nurses do a very good job in trying to feed this kid uh, and kind of uh, bundling them and putting them to sleep so they can get most of the uh, study done that way. Uh, they also use techniques uh, called uh, uh, a papoose, that is a pneumatic uh, blanket that the kid can uh, be put into. And once it's inflated, the kid really just goes to sleep and stays still. Uh, although none of these techniques have been shown to be superior to sedation as such. Um, the other thing that we do is any kid who is less than 60 weeks post-conceptual age, we kind of usually observe them for at least uh, 12 hours in the hospital. Uh, there's some reported, um, uh, and uh, well-reported in anesthesia literature that this small uh, babies, especially if they're ex-premies, can have uh, apnea uh, following general anesthesia. So we kind of follow the same rule. Uh, and I want to caution uh, 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 people who are watching this that infants less than five kilos uh, present a higher airway risk in general for sedation. Um, as a center, uh, because we do so many kids, uh, we have uh, we uh, looked at our experience with kids who are less than six months of age. And we found that uh, we have done a lot of those kids. And in one uh, report with, that we published in uh, pediatric radiology of the 304 infants that we looked uh, uh, who are under six months for who received propofol for MRI, uh, first of all, about almost 20% of them were less than three months of age. Uh, we found out the procedure success rate was close to 99%. Uh, there is a slightly increase in uh, adverse events, uh, almost about 12.8%, uh, which is much higher than the 5% I quoted before. And the serious adverse event rate also was about slightly higher. It's about 4.3%, which was 2.2% for other general uh, population. Uh, on, again, uh, no kid had cardiac arrest or no kid died. Uh, there was one kid who had laryngospasm, uh, survived neurologically intact. Uh, the, I think the lesson, the take-home message here is yes, you can do kids who are under six months of age, but you need to be really skilled at recognizing and managing airway complications. We'd like to take a moment now to involve our viewers in the discussion by asking a question. In your response, please state your city and country location. The question is this. Do you have a formal screening process in your hospital for outpatient pediatric sedation? And if so, who does the screening? I want to caution of people watching is that we are an elective service, meaning we will not do emergency sedation in an outpatient arena because the patient may not be appropriately fasting. Uh, we are also not a service where if the patient needs a breathing tube, we do not want to sedate them because they need a breathing tube for reason. Uh, and we do sedate kids uh, from the ICUs and, uh, and in the inpatient area, we just bring them to the outpatient area and sedate them. And we do also do a lot of consults where if if someone has a question whether a patient is a sedation candidate or not, we can go and kind of do the consult for the patient. I think, Tracy, I think the, the thing to remember is uh, although we have a very large sedation service, uh, as a group, we give every, chan uh, chan every kid a chance 
to do the procedure without sedation. And most kids who are, um, uh, you know, more than six years of age, as long as the procedure is very short, they're not claustrophobic or have high anxiety levels, uh, probably can do a lot of this non-painful, non-invasive procedures like an MRI. Um, we try to involve parents in that process. We try to keep one parent in the MRI with the child. Uh, we use the services of child life specialists. Uh, we, and they use a lot of distraction techniques. You know, they may be showing them a movie. We have uh, goggles where they can watch movies through. They can listen to music. Uh, we use uh, even, a, we have a therapy dog. Uh, with a, and his name is Ty. And he has helped us with a lot of short CT scans where patient doesn't even have to get an IV. Uh, so, um, so we have kind of, we try to not to sedate kids who do not need sedation, okay? And so if the kid needs, uh, you know, it's a long scan, uh, kid needs to be, uh, you know, not moving for a long time, that's difficult for a small kid. So that is the time we may have to provide sedation to get the best images. Uh, and also when contrast is used, okay, whether it's in CT or in MRI, as soon as the contrast is injected, the kid gets a very funny feeling that they feel warm, uh, get a, me a metallic taste in their mouth, and they may want to move. Uh, so uh, at that time, they may probably need some deeper level of sedation just to stay still during the uh, process when the contrast is injected. Well, that's interesting. You know, you've described a lot of um, ways in which the environment that you're working in is quite different from the ICU in terms of equipment and personnel, and yet you still have a pretty excellent safety record. And I'm curious, what policies and procedures have you put in play within your sedation program to ensure the safest delivery of sedation for these patients? Yeah. First of all, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the team composition. Uh, so uh, the, the physicians who can work in sedation are either drawn from the uh, uh, critical care group or the ED group or anesthesia, because all this three physicians, uh, you know, physicians from these three uh, areas are uh, experts at airway management and recognizing and managing hemodynamic complications. Uh, we, um, um, you know, we take uh, physicians uh, into sedation and watch them for about 10, uh, at least 10 sedations where they are proctored and supervised and, and, and by an ex another experienced physician. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of learn all our procedures and policies and what we do for safety. Mm -hmm. um, they, uh, uh, the other thing that we do before every sedation is we run a checklist with the nurse uh, and the physician in the room uh, and uh, also the parents participating in this checklist where we check uh, airway equipment, suction, oxygen, uh, not just at the wall, but make sure that it's actually functional and working and the mask is the appropriate size. Uh, we double check the, uh, the drug that we use, which is usually propofol. We check the bolus dose, we check the infusion dose, uh, and we check the kid's weight. It's done multiple times to ensure a fail-safe approach to the sedation. Um, in the kids that are slightly higher risk, we will discuss with the team up front. Uh, we will also let the parents know during the consent process that, you know, um, little Johnny here is a little higher risk because he's having cough and obstructive sleep apnea symptoms. Uh, but the good thing is we're using drugs that are very short acting. So if we get in trouble, we can very quickly shut off the drug and rescue the airway. Uh, the other thing that is unique to our program is we have developed uh, a rescue kit. And that rescue kit has uh, drugs like uh, flumazenil, mm -hmm. um, uh, Narcan, 
uh, atropine and succinylcholine. And these are, uh, you know, uh, if we use fentanyl and if kid stops breathing, I can quickly use Narcan and reverse that. And same thing if I use a benzodiazepine, I can use flumazenil and reverse that. You know, if I get into the dreaded complication of laryngospasm, uh, I can quickly uh, reverse that. A, first I would give a higher dose of propofol and see if that kind of relaxes the spasm. But if that doesn't work, I'm going to give succinylcholine, which usually causes a little bradycardia, so I will give it give a little atropine behind that. So uh, the, 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 uh, this reversal kit will go with every patient in whichever area the patient is sedated with. Um, we do a lot of uh, training uh, of, of our nurses. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Brenda is our educator who makes sure that nurses go through all the latest competences that they need to go through because there's a lot of regulation when you do outpatient sedation. Uh, we uh, encourage all our physicians to attend uh, the sedation conference. They have a, a simulation course where they kind of uh, uh, teach uh, sedation uh, simulation uh, so they can go to that course uh, and kind of develop their skills. Um, so we kind of, and, and we look at all our failed sedates uh, every uh, week and we have to present a report to the Anesthesia Quality Council to make sure that, you know, we're not failing in a, one particular area. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, I, as I talked about, the Preparation for uh, sedation, you know, we use a mnemonic called SOAPME, which is a very common uh, anesthesia mnemonic, and I probably described all the components of it already. Uh, um, yeah, and then we also use a thing called sample assessment, which is a very common uh, thing used in uh, secondary assessment of the uh, advanced life support courses. And so when you say when I say sample, I, I quickly look at what the signs and symptoms of the kid, kid has. I sometimes even put snoring in that. Uh, I look at the kids, I see what the allergies kid, kid has, the medications the kid is taking, especially focusing on medications that may interact with my uh, uh, medications that I'm going to give. And for example, if a kid is coming to me from Hemonc, he may be on a continuous morphine PCA. And if I give a huge dose of propofol on top of that, um, you know, that may have uh, complications. Um, I also look at the kid's past medical history. That's a very important thing to do because uh, if uh, in the in his previous sedation, the kid had a bad interaction with a certain drug, you may want to avoid that drug during this sedation. Uh, we also sometimes go back and look at what the um, course of the kid was if he had to go to the operating room. Was he an easy bag mask? You know, was his airway easy? So those are very important things to know before you put a kid under sedation. And of course, we want to know when the kid ate last um, and uh, any events that led to this injury or illness. Um, so uh, we also uh, have uh, very robust uh, pre-sedation screening guidelines, uh, you know, so, uh, and we go uh, about screening kids by organ system. So if a kid is, you know, has a, a, a tracheomalacia, laryngomalacia, where I know he's going to need, pos he or she is going to need positive pressure once I give deep sedation, that may not be a kid for me to sedate. That may be a kid that that is best done by the anesthesiologist. And so we have, by consensus, built a lot of uh, uh, conditions that where we would not go and sedate. For example, a patient who has a mediastinal mass, uh, those kids are dangerous even for the anesthesiologist. So they are ne definitely not uh, 
kids for my uh, you know candidates for sedation so uh, we will exclude a lot of those kids who are very high risk and who really need the services of an anesthesiologist we con consult with our uh, anesthesiology colleagues very frequently uh, we discuss with them high risk kids and many times if they say this kid is okay for us we will take him into sedation or they may take him to anesthesia and try to sedate him the way we sedate. And if they don't get in trouble, they would send him to us for his, his or her next sedation. We also talk to a lot of other subspecialists. If it's a cardiac kid, we may talk to the a cardiologist. If it's a kid who has pulmonary problems, we will talk to the pulmonologist. So we have a really a, a, a very a good team approach to this uh, because I think I go by the premise that asking for help is not a sign of weakness and I really want to make sure that the kid is served well whether a he needs sedation or he needs the anesthesiologist um, so uh, we uh, before we sedate the patient we also go about doing a very good airway exam uh, and this may not be possible in kids who are very uh, small because most of these uh, airway exams are for kids who are older than 12 years of age. Uh, I sometimes look at what, what we call as 332 rule where, uh, you know, I can so by the first three of the 332 rule is where I tell the kid to put his three fingers in his mouth. And if he can, you know, that basically tells me there is a, a wide mouth opening. The other 333, three, uh, the second three of this 3332 rule basically looks at the submental area that basically tells me that that is enough space uh, for the tongue to be dis displaced in case the kid needs an intubation. Uh, and the last uh, two of the 332 rule basically as assesses the position of the glottis in relation to the base of the tongue, kind of indirectly tells me how anterior the airway could be. Uh, so that is, again, this thing may not be able to do in a kid who is two months old, but, you know, kids who are older than 12, this is a good exam uh, to do. Um, the other uh, thing that I do is uh, I look at the Amalampati classification. Uh, again, an exam that may not be uh, uh, doable in a very small child, uh, and you want to tell them to open the mouth very wide and put the tongue out, and you basically want to look at uh, the exposure of the tonsillar pillars and the uvula, which would be like a malampati 1, and then you have malampati 4, where you just basically see the middle part of the tongue, okay? Those uh, patients are generally not considered to be sedation candidates, especially if they have other comorbidities. Uh, uh, we would actually give them to the anesthesiologist. Uh, and then there are certain kids that uh, we would not sedate. You know, kids who have uh, who are potentially have a lot of syndromes with airway difficulty. Okay, a good example of that is kids who have retrognathia. You know, Pierre Robin syndrome. Uh, kids who have a mid face hypoplasia, Cruzon syndrome. Um, the other thing I watch for sometimes is kids who have a lot of uh, hemangiomas uh, on their face. We want to make sure that similar lesions are not present in the airway. Uh, so in case I sedate, I don't lose the airway. And, and those are the kids we have talked to the uh, ENT doctors and they uh, have even scoped the kids before we sedate the kid for a long MRI uh, procedure uh, because that I want to make sure that the airway is, uh, is patent and open before I, I sedate the kid. Uh, we also do um, extensive monitoring of the patient. We get baseline vital signs, which includes heart rate, respiratory rate, 
uh, blood pressure baseline uh, pulse uh, uh, oxygen saturation on a pulse oximetry. Uh, once the kid is uh, sedated, we usually use entitle uh, uh, and measure an entitle and and see and make sure that we have a good waveform. The kid is you know uh, exchanging uh, CO2 well, uh, and uh, we rely on a lot of capnography waveform to tell us make sure the kid is not apneic uh, or the kid is not having what we call as hypopnic hypoventilation where the tidal volume is low uh, but the kid has a good rate or the kid can have what we call as bradypneic hypoventilation where the kid's tidal volume is normal but the rate is low okay so uh, i'm not exactly watching a number in the end title uh, but i'm also watching the waveform very closely um, I wanted to go back a little bit to your um, pre-screening and evaluation process. You mentioned a lot about some of the kind of more obvious diseases that would be, you know, important not to sedate in an outpatient setting, such as uh, retronathia, some complex congenital heart disease. But I'm curious what you do with some of the more common and maybe less obvious patients that are at a little bit higher risk, such as those patients with obesity or behavioral problems like autism. Uh, what's your generalized approach to thinking about those patients? And, you know, do you have a framework that allows you to think about how or when you might sedate these kinds of patients? Uh, Tracy, that is a very good question. And I think uh, what uh, limits us on what we do in sedation mm -hmm. is there's not a lot of randomized controlled trials out there. Uh, but uh, the large databases like Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium, you know, from the Society of Pediatric Sedation have really helped us to kind of uh, derive some associations when we sedate uh, uh, kids with uh, um, of, uh, different conditions like obesity or autism. They, des uh, they had more desaturations. They were hypoxic. Uh, some of them had upper airway obstruction needed, uh, you know, bag mask, uh, you know, CPAP, uh, and even airway instrumentation like when I mean airway instrumentation is in uh, an oral airway or an NP tube. So um, they can be sedated, but I think uh, uh, the, the people, uh, the sedation providers need to be ready to, and anticipate that, uh, you know, such complications can happen uh, in uh, in these obese kids. Uh, um, the obese kids that I'm worried about are the ones that really have other comorbidities with them. You know, if the obese child has uh, problems with his heart, uh, has obstructive sleep apnea, has a recent URI that has very green uh, mucusy phlegm being produced, uh, that is a kid who is going to give you a lot of additive risk. And I would kind of caution um, uh, sedation providers uh, as to, you know, hey, is this study really urgent or can the patient wait for a couple more weeks before this inflammation has subsided? Um, the children who have autism spectrum disorders uh, are uh, presenting their own kind of set of problems, okay? They have um, a lot of uh, behavioral issues, uh, communication and sensory issues. Uh, they don't like unfamiliar environment, which you can imagine coming to the hospital is one. And the area like uh, MRIs are, are actually zoned off. So there's only certain area you can, uh, the patients can have to wade in. They cannot kind of freely roam around. And the kids with autism spectrum disorders do not kind of do well with that. And I think uh, there's some evidence that they, when they're subjected to traumatic stress like that, it can actually make them have regressive behaviors. Uh, so um, we as a center have a lot of experience in sedating uh, 
children with autism spectrum disorders. Uh, we have we involved the child life specialist up front uh, who will actually call the parent a few days before and kind of talk to the parents and say, what does uh, Johnny like? Okay, or what does he dislike? You know, the answer could be, he doesn't like br uh, bright lights, okay? Uh, he doesn't like noises or something like that. So we kind of try to work with the family uh, and when, as the child comes in, kind of prepare that, that those conditions. We try to keep the registration process very short. Uh, we may, uh, you know, make him the first case in the morning so that he's not stimulated by other people around. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and once the child comes in, the other big problem is uh, placing an IV. Uh, and so what we have to do is, uh, you know, either uh, in one study that I did, where I looked at kids coming with autism spectrum disorders and I compared them to kids who did not have an autism spectrum disorder, uh, I found out that 10 to 12% of the time we need extra personnel to help with uh, getting the patient ready. And it's usually uh, the placement of the IV, which is very, uh, you know, traumatic for this pa uh, cohort of patients. And so once the IV is placed in, the drugs are the same drugs you would use for any other patient. And my study also showed that there was no higher incidence of adverse events when we compared kids with autism spectrum disorders to kids without autism spectrum disorders. Uh, yes, we can sedate them. We just need to prepare well. Uh, we need to really use our child life services. We need to look at what are called as autism coping plans, um, and we can sedate these kids. Mm -hmm. The other big patient risk factor is upper respiratory tract infection, okay? And it's an independent risk for airway adverse events and needing more interventions. Um, during the winter months, this is unavoidable. Like every second kid that comes in will have some sort of upper respiratory tract infection. And I think, you know, as long as it's not, if the, as long as the kid doesn't have lower respiratory tract infection, along with that upper respiratory tract infection, kid is not febrile, is not uh, having greenish mucusy phlegm, uh, I think the kid can be sedated. And especially, uh, you know, kids who come to the hematology oncology clinic, they require their bone marrow and LP because they are on a cycle of chemotherapy and it's really not avoidable. That's great. And you mentioned a little bit earlier about some of the earlier medications that were often used for sedation and how now that we're using different types of medications. And I'm curious if you could talk us through a little bit about what are the, the current kind of go-to medications that you're using in your sedation program and are there any new drugs that are emerging that you're excited about that you think are going to help revolutionize the field of outpatient pediatric sedation? Yeah, so previously, uh, you know, we uh, when we first started, we used to use a lot of uh, chloral hydrate. Mm -hmm. And so uh, since 2012, uh, you know, chloral hydrate is not freely available anymore. Um, so that drug has gone out of, has fallen out of favor. Uh, we also used to use a lot of uh, uh, pentobarbital which is not um, used as much uh, because I think what sedation providers are looking for are drugs that work really fast, are reliable, and uh, you know don't have a lingering effect. It, uh, what I mean by that is that once the sedation procedure is done, the kid is, can be woken up and can go home. Okay, that's what I think everybody is looking for. So now we have drugs like propofol, you know, which is uh, which is very works really fast 
has a very short uh, action, meaning if I get in trouble, I can kind of stop the drug and rescue the kid. Um, we also have uh, drugs like ketamine, which are, uh, you know, much more uh, friendlier to the airway. You know, they maintain airway reflexes, so that can be used for procedures that are painful. Uh, I like to use um, fentanyl a lot with for my uh, procedures as an analgesic because I have a reversal agent, which is Narcan. So in case I get in trouble with fentanyl, I can use Narcan. Um, we also have a drug called dexmedetomidine that is being used a lot in, in sedation uh, nowadays. Uh, one of the things is uh, there's a lot of uh, discussion happening about pediatric neurotoxicity, especially with the preclinical data showing uh, that uh, pediatric neurotox uh, neurotoxicity can happen, uh, but it's not been quite proven uh, in, uh, in, in, in uh, infants and children yet. But uh, so, and dexmedetomidin was one of the few drugs uh, that has been not, is not shown to cause neurotoxicity as such. So it's a good drug to use to decrease uh, the use of other drugs uh, in outpatient sedation. Uh, I think what we are going to see in the future is a lot of uh, use of intranasal medications. Uh, and uh, what that does is intranasal medications, um, it avoids an IV. Uh, it is something that is uh, good for quick, uh, quick short scans or short MRIs. And again, DEX is becoming one of the uh, you know favorite drug to be used intranasally with a lot of uh, sedation providers because they can do this, spray the drug, drug in the nose, and and get the procedure completed without needing an IV. We have one last question for our audience. What are the common drugs that you are using at your hospital for outpatient pediatric sedation? In your response, please list your city and country. What else do you see as sort of coming down as the, the future of pediatric sedation in addition to, you know, or, or different than medications? Is there anything else that, that you're excited about? The other thing is that there's a lot of change in imaging modalities. Mm -hmm. I think we um, have seen that there are faster CT scan scanners now um, that kind of can scan the whole uh, body in like 0.5 seconds or can scan the brain of a child in 0.03 seconds. So what that does is that means that a patient can probably just lay down in the, on the scanner with his mom at the side or a child life specialist without really needing sedation. So that kind of avoids sedation for them. The other thing to think about is uh, MRI procedures are very long. Uh, MRI procedures, you don't really have good access to the patient when you, once you put the patient in MRI. And so I think the practitioners can really think about, you know, is, is this something where the kid who is slated to get an MRI, can he really just get a CT scan? The other good thing about this newer, faster CT scanners is their radiation risk is very low. And so, you know, the previous concern used to be, hey, CT equals radiation risk, therefore let's do MRI. Maybe now we need to shift the paradigm and think about, can this ha kid have a quick CT uh, scan and kind of avoid all the complications that could come with a prolonged MRI scan? Um, and I, I, like I pointed out earlier, there's a lot of things that we're going to hear about pediatric neurotoxicity. Uh, and I think uh, uh, as uh, pediatric sedation providers, we need to be careful about and kind of be watchful about what exactly is coming out more uh, from a lot of data comes out from uh, an organization called Smart Thoughts, which, uh, which is doing really good work in the arena of pediatric neurotoxicity. So I think we need to be careful about what procedures we are doing 
how long uh, these procedures are, uh, talking about the risk a, amongst uh, ourselves and amongst uh, the f uh, referring doctors and the parents. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we're going to hear more about that. Well, I wanted to thank you for sharing your expertise today in the, you know, the field of outpatient pediatric sedation. Not all of us are working in the outpatient arena, and it's really exciting to hear kind of what inroads and sort of um, advances have been made out in the field and, and how really this can be done in such a safe mechanism. So thank you for your time and for, for being here to share your thoughts and expertise with our audience. Yeah. Thank you, Tracy. And I want to thank the Open Pediatrics for having me uh, here today to talk about outpatient sedation. If uh, folks want to learn more about outpatient sedation, uh, they can uh, look at our website, which is uh, uh, pedsedation.org. Uh, the Society for Pediatric Sedation also has a conference every year, and we have a very good uh, sedation simulation course uh, just before the conference. Uh, the next conference is going to be in uh, 2019 in May in Denver. And so uh, folks can come and learn more about sed pediatric sedation at that conference. That's Thank wonderful. you. That's a great resource. Thank you. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.